Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This week, the news is largely focused on the Republican National Convention. But just days ago, our nation was reacting to another deadly shooting when three police officers were killed by a man in Baton Rouge. Before that, another five officers in Dallas killed by a lone gunman during otherwise peaceful protests. Protests brought on by the latest killings of black men by police. First, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, then Philando Castile in a suburb of St. Paul. Social media not only connects us to these events, but it provides an outlet for people from all over the country to weigh in. The online conversations can help and hurt the dialogue happening in our communities. Have you thought about what drives these violent acts? And how can our country turn the corner? Or will it get worse before it gets better? We ask you today to join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Today, we invited local residents into the studio to talk about how recent events have impacted them. We wanted to hear their thoughts on ways the country may be able to move forward. Uh, Shafiq Abdusabur is a New Haven police officer and author of A Black Man's Guide to Law Enforcement in America. He joins us from the studios of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, Shafiq. Welcome to Where We Live. Good morning. So I'll start with you. You're a police officer. You've had a long career in law enforcement, I've read. Um, how do you reconcile what's going on these days in terms of, of, of your life as a black man and a, a police officer in this country? So, you know, I live in a, in a couple of different worlds. I'm a, I'm a black man. I am a police officer for over 20 years now. I'm Muslim. You know, I'm a father. I have two, I have three black sons, um, in the, you know, that live with me or might as well say live with me. They're 20, 22, and 15, right? And so uh, I've had to wrestle with trying to balance seeing things from the side of law enforcement as well as seeing things from the side of the community, and particularly as a black man myself, who when I'm off duty, I am not necessarily recognizably uh, visible as being a police officer, especially if I'm in plain clothes. So I still have to bear the anxieties that many other African-American and men of color have as it relates to how these police-related shootings of often unarmed black males are portrayed in the media. So there's a there's a level of, of, of hysteria that you follow in your daily life, whether you are worried about your own safety, sometimes if you're off duty, whether you are constant in fear and anxiety of your own sons and could they be, you know, the next one. How are you reacting uh- First off, to the, the, the deadly shootings in Baton Rouge, Minnesota, and Dallas. And then I wanted to then bring in some of our other guests uh, in studio. So I think it's important, you know, what has been happening over the last couple of weeks is that, you know, the, the phrases has just come up deadly shooting. So, you know, the deadly shootings. But actually there's, there's two types of shootings. There are a police-related shooting that is still going to be under the process of being investigated by the Justice Department. And then, you know, we have to call it what it is. There are these assaults and attack 
on police officers who were not involved in those deadly shootings that are controversial and under investigation. These are police officers who are in the course of their day doing their duty, you know, are murdered. So, I mean, that's two, it's two different things, you know. And for me, I'll be honest with you, I mean, it's very disturbing. You know, it affects me. You know, you have nightmares. You you have a, a problem sleeping. You know, I, I come home and I'm looking in my wife's face or I'm looking at my children's face. I really don't know what they're thinking. I'm leaving the house. And, you know, for the first time in my entire life, you know, I was a police officer now for almost 20, 21 years. I used to come to work every day and say, you know what, I can get the best of my three years. I'm going to get my pension. I'm going to retire and live life happily ever after. Well, I could have retired June 3rd, and I'm still here. And I decided to stay at the, the police department, here, police department, because I like what's going on here. I think I can make a difference in the community. I think I can help other people's lives. But now I've realized with these assaults on police officers, people don't know us individually. People don't know Shafiq Abdusabar, what I have to go through on a day-to-day basis. But for the first time putting on this uniform, I've come to realize that if I'm going to stay in this profession, a day after retirement. Now I'm, I'm about two months after retirement. There's a strong possibility that I will probably die in this uniform because given the climate, someone out there is out there posing these risks to police officers. And because I have decided to stay and take on more of a action change role or, you know, I guess you can call it a be a changer inside of the system, I've put myself at an additional risk that I've never had to bear before. So now I wear the uniform in a different way. I, I I realize that for the first time that there's a strong possibility I'll never see my pension. And all I hope that my family and the people that know me realize that I come to work because I think that I can make a difference. I believe in the officers. I believe in our system of law enforcement. We do need a lot of work to do. There's a, lo- a long way to go, but we're not going to get there if people don't just put their foot out there and just think outside the box and be willing to really right now put it all on the line. Let me ask you, uh, Shafiq, again, before we head to our other guests, do you know other uh, fellow policemen in the New Haven Police Department who are thinking about hanging up their uniform, that what's going on in this country scares them too much to continue? You know, remarkably, I talk to police officers really all around the country, and I have not heard that from one police officer around the country, you know, and, and that's the different change is that, you know, you would think, hey, listen, at the end of the day, by the time you take out the taxes, the, the FICA, the future, your, your pension deductions, and everything comes out your check, you're really only making in a take home per hour, maybe like $20. And in some states around the country, you, you know, you might even be making like $10 an hour. So it's like, who in their right mind would come to work when people are targeting police officers for $10 an hour. That's a person that doing their job goes way beyond what they're getting paid. That's something that's in your heart. That's something that's made up in your character. That's the desire. You know, people say this, you know, police officers are racist. Police officers don't like black people. Black people don't like black people. Police officers. I've never seen and never heard in my 20 years, and you might come across police officers that are biased. That is absolutely true. 
But I've never heard somebody, when the radio call comes in and says, any unit can respond, we got gunshots going off over here, or we got somebody shot. Nine times out of ten, most police officers in, in their communities, like a, like a New Haven community, they know that person's black. They know the shooting's coming from a black community. They don't stay where they're at getting coffee and say, oh, don't worry about them people, I'm on set. They don't stay where they're at in their car saying, I'll give them ten more minutes when it's all done, we'll get there. No, you know what they do? They get in the car, they press the gas pedal as fast as they can, and they drive to that location because they're programmed to save people's lives. And that's not necessarily something that can be taught in the police academy. That's a desire that they have to help people. So the sad part is, out of all the police officers in the United States, unfortunately, you get police officers that are involved in these controversial shootings, most often white police officers, most often shooting um, black males. And coincidentally, most of the time, those black males are unarmed. But they do not represent the majority or the face of law enforcement nationwide, just like a black man who carries a gun who has maybe a felony doesn't represent black men nationwide. So we really got to stop, take a deep breath and have the honest conversations, maybe in smaller groups, maybe really not in the mass media, but we got to have the conversation about really what's going on, define the problem and get to the root of the problem. And that's, and that's not just make it, you know, this big hysterical thing of uh, police are killing unarmed black men, because we know that that is not the intent with law enforcement. That's Shafiq Abdusabur. He's a New Haven police officer, author of A Black Man's Guide to Law Enforcement in America. He joins Where We Live from the studios of Yale University, New Haven, Connecticut. I wanted to bring in the conversation uh, Reverend Dr. Damaris Whitaker, Senior Minister of the First Church of Christ in Hartford, Connecticut. Also, Janae Woods, a local community organizer and activist. She has a blog, What Matters, JanaeWoods.com. What has been your reaction this past month uh, of uh, Reverend Whitaker of of the violence uh, in our country that appears when we may be in Connecticut, Mm -hmm. but because of social media, because of these cell phone Mm -hmm. videos, these things are happening very close to us? I I think I'm not alone in saying that there has been a sense of an ominous cloud that we've all experienced in the last, I think, since, since Michael Brown, since Ferguson. And we felt the loss. Um, I have to speak for myself, but I, I felt the loss of um, the shootings of, of black men as well as police officers deeply and equally. I I struggle with and I reflect a lot and talk to many of my colleagues and people in the community about how can we create spaces of both and that we don't... Um, are misinterpreted as uh, a person who is against blue lives when we say black lives matter. That that is not taken in our communities as we don't value the lives of our police officers and that we are able to move forward in a conciliatory manner as opposed to um, in a posture of of offensive manner, for lack of a better word. And what we're struggling with is finding that balance, that balance of how do we come to this place where we acknowledge that we have to say black life matters because this country has not assigned, have not recognized the inherent value that resides in black lives without taking that statement as then my life doesn't matter. And that we say blue lives matter because we appreciate the service and the sacrifice of police officers. So we are in this this very difficult place in our communities where courageous and sacred conversations on race 
need to happen, where we can come together and go deep and not accept uh, answers that are not concrete and that are, are superficial. We have to have the courage to come together. We are in a place, we're in an impasse. How do we move forward? And I agree with uh, Shafiq in that we have to really have these conversations, not necessarily in the mass media, but in our immediate communities so that we become then agents of change. But we're not going to do that if we continue to posture mm -hmm. and if we continue to take sides and if we continue not to listen to each other and misinterpret intentions. If we don't recognize that this problem is not of today and that this is hundreds of years in the making. Speaking of that, uh, Janae, I wanted to read a, a tweet that we're getting from a listener. Ultimately, we don't get to the roots of this, this violence we've seen in the last few weeks until we address segregation in our country. Yes, that is very, very true, um, especially here in Connecticut. We're a very segregated state, not only across racial lines, but across class and income lines. And um, segregation is, uh, you know, an outgrowth of several hundred years of um, very overt discrimination uh, stemming from slavery and redlining of uh, black and Latino communities. And something along with segregation has happened is that I think we have developed this sense that communities of color, you know, that are predominantly communities of color, are inherently dangerous and criminal places which leads to over-policing and different kinds of policing in those communities, which, of course, heightens the conditions that lead to the kind of violence that we're seeing today. I was talking with you before the show, Janae, about um, your blog and why you, what prompted you to begin writing about um, these very complicated issues in our society, society today. Can you tell our listeners about that? Sure. Um, I started writing about these issues from a place of deep sorrow, very, very deep sorrow, and also a lot of outrage following the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson. I really could not believe what I was seeing um, in the news, the way that this young man, this teenager, was being portrayed, and I was really disheartened by the what I perceived to be the lack of conversation about it in social media and um, in my everyday real life uh, with some of the white folks that I know. And one question I heard asked often was, well, what can I do? I, I don't know what to do. I care about this, but I don't know where to start. So I sat down <laughs> late at night and started thinking back to you know my community organizing days around organizing people to have difficult conversations about important community issues and bringing together diverse opinions and really digging deep at root causes of what was happening. And I made a list of 12 things mm -hmm. that people could start to do right now to not only educate themselves, but to activate and politicize themselves around these issues so that they could be more informed and raise their consciousness and awareness around these issues and really find ways to have openings for conversations and to take action with other people around them. Because we do need to start having these courageous conversations, as Damaris said, but we also need to be willing to move to action. Our conversations need to go somewhere. It isn't enough for us to just sit 
and talk these problems into the ground. They're not going to magically suddenly solve themselves. So we need to really be action-oriented and towards a transformative change. Um, I think you said conciliatory. Mm -hmm. That was a word that you used. And I I like that word because I like that idea of us coming together and all of us owning problems, you know, not just the intent, but also the impact. But I also think that we need to be transformational because I'm I'm thinking back to something that um, our our police officer guest said where he said, you know, there are lots of good police officers out there. And I actually, I believe that. And to tie that into what you were saying about either or thinking, that's exactly true. Yes, we have a serious problem here with black men, unarmed black men being shot by police. And I'd actually like to take this moment to lift up the fact that it isn't just unarmed black men. It's also black women. And the Native community is also being deeply impacted by this issue, as well as the Latino community. It's just not being reported on in the same way that um, black lives is being reported on. But they are also feeling the burden and the oppression in this moment. Um, So that's happening. But at the same time, there are good police officers, but they're operating in a policing system that I believe needs to be changed. It needs to be dismantled and changed um, because it's clearly not working. There's something inherently flawed in the system of policing. And that's how an individual actor who's good can still be part of a broken system. Uh, You know, your individual actions don't necessarily change problems in a system. I want to uh, get our police officer's perspective. Shafiq Abdusabur again joining us from New Haven. Uh, you're able to hear what Janae was saying about how uh, more needs to be done to change policing in this country. What are some of your suggestions? The first thing we need to do is, and, I, and I've said this before on many shows, and I, and I respect President Obama. I think he's a, a very good president. He's done some, some really good things, and he's been faced with a lot of tough challenges. But this is really that, something that has to come from the top. The president has to link up with the with the Justice Department and say, here's what we're going to do, number one. We're going to start the process within all of American law enforcement, federal and state and local, the municipalities, and we are going to move towards the decriminalization of black skin. Because right now, we can all agree that there is a narrative in America that is being supported with our society, our stereotypes, movies, uh, media, you name it, that when you even think black male, you probably have five more negative things that come to your mind before the first good one. And if it's normally a first good one, it's probably another stereotype. So the first thing needs to happen is we got to decriminalize black skin. Black men have to stop being perceived and projected as being dangerous, have a felony. They got brazy, must have got out of jail. They got big muscles, they must have got out of jail. Um, you know, they look disheveled, they might have a mental issue. That's number one. The other two, the other thing is the president needs to hook up with the Justice Department. And we need a national policing model. It needs to be standardized. It needs to be within the Justice Department. The Justice Department needs to have a criterion so that police departments have to certify themselves with the Justice Department based on these criterions, based on the information that they've discovered in some of these controversial shootings, some of the shortcomings in the management, some of the shortcomings in the hiring practices. And it should be done in such a way that if you're going to be a, a city and you're going to practice community-based policing, 
then you should have to be certified. And the Justice Department comes in with monitors and actually makes sure you're fitting the criterion of what community-based policing is. The other part is policing's got to be regionalized because the way people want to be policed on the East Coast is not the same way that people might want to be policed in California on the West Coast. So we have to make it specific to their needs. I call it myself neighborhood-specific policing. Then you start getting down to, you know, what often you've heard in probably in the, in the news where somebody says, we can only police a community that allows us to police. And I don't care how much grants you get, how many weapons you get, how much talk you do. The community allows us to police them because policing is per, it's perceived power from that the community gives us. They give it to us as a courtesy. It is not something that we have the ability to demand it from them. And may I say something about that? Um, yeah, Reverend Whitaker. Shafiq, um, I just want to just uphold something. Your introduction to us today was the perfect example of people like many of us that are experiencing or living in an intersectional reality. You're a black male who's a policeman who's a Muslim in a world that your identities sort of change and shifts in perception depending on what you have on that particular day. But adding to what uh, Shafiq just told us, can, may I just say, in the, at the local level, we, the police officers in the community, have so a vast um, realm of opportunities to do some um, work together. Recently, I was walking after worship at downtown Hartford, and I met a police officer without a uniform. And I met him because he was looking for his Pokemon, right? And so I had just realized that our church has two Pokemon stops. So we that was a point of conversation. And then not only that, but just last night as I was driving home, I get this email from our faith officer, faith-based officer, uh, Officer Antunia, asking the, the churches to provide him with youth who would want to go fishing with him. Now, I know this is not something that the Hartford Police Department is making him do. So not only do we need a top-down reformation and transformation of system, but we also need this local effort to humanize our police officers and our police officers to then have contact and create relationships with the community, as, as Shafiq was explaining to us, so that that consent is given voluntarily and willingly as opposed to imposed. When we think that the only element that makes an encounter between a regular citizen with a police officer is compliance, then we are in very, we're in deep trouble here because I think that we are lacking the human component. And we have, we're now in this very dangerous place in this country and then we have this narrative of law and order coming from this election. And we're, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We have some callers on the line. We're going to get to your calls in just a moment. Again, we're talking about the recent violence in our country. How can we move the conversation forward? We want to hear your calls, your comments, 860-275-7266.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've heard this statement before. Maybe you've even had the same thought, that our country is divided more now than ever before. Do you agree? Disagree? We've asked some local Connecticut residents into the studio to answer this question, among others. Our discussion is pegged to the recent violence in our country this past month, where black men and police officers have been shot and killed. Today, where we live, we want to ask how we can move forward, not backward. More likely than not, there will be more fatal interactions. Can this violence end? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to take some calls now. Kevin from Hartford, you're on where we live. Yes, and I, um, I was saying and listening to your conversation, um, I know that NPR is a fairly fair station, and um, what I was saying is that I was always under the impression that, you know, there's not a segregation in the system, but I was in uh, Norwich Lockup, and when I was there, I felt that thing firsthand where I saw white people coming out of the jail, and I was there held without n- no um, whatever, nothing. Like, I was, like, uh, invincible, you know? So I'm saying the only thing is that it's happening is that it's only being transferred to different, different um sections like oh we quantify a black person doing violence and another person doing this but it's all human being and we need to get back to the human section of this thing thank you you thank you kevin for your call i want to take a call now josh from hartford you're on where we live hey i want i'm a public defender and i live in in hartford and one of the things the officer from new haven mentioned the importance of having the community consent to being police And a big obstacle that I see to that is in in a lot of police training, from what I've learned through work and otherwise, the emphasis is always on tactical advantage. It's always on seeing potential danger. And and a lot of police that I've interacted with have told me that their training says the first thing you look at is where will the danger come from? Even if they're talking to a witness, a person who doesn't, shouldn't present any danger. And I see this out my window. I live in Frog Hollow. Bill, anyone that they talk to, that the police talk to on the street, the first thing they say is, take your hands out of your pockets, let me see your hands. And so there's an approach that's, that's confrontational and that suggests danger. And, you know, when I walk through my neighborhood, someone might look a little shady to me, but I can't tell them to take their hands out of their pockets. I just have to proceed with my business like everybody else. But that approach, that tactical approach that the police bring, I would suggest unnecessarily really creates a divide between them and the folks that they're policing. Thank you, Josh, from Hartford for that uh, comment. Uh, Shafiq, do you want to answer how uh, policing can have a a less tactical approach that Josh mentioned? I I think it really comes down to the training and balance of a police department. I think it comes down to the mindset and philosophy that the chief at the top um, delivers to the department. I think it also goes along with the makeup of the officers and their relationship, how well they work with community. Some people are more personable, and they can close the gap in terms of their, uh, you know, intimate space. Some people are more, you know, stay offish, and they don't want you in their personal space. So really it comes down to that. It's, It's about having police officers that you can help them break through their stereotypes so they don't perceive specific cultures or different people or when they're in different environments where they get tensed up and they feel like, well, this is a threat. And that's going to come really a lot of the times with the culture of the existing police department that that officer is coming into because the vast majority of what you learn after the academy is your day-to-day engagement 
in that environment. So you've got to really be working hard in some police departments. If you have officers that are assigned to a specific district, and let's just say it's a district with um, black people, and let's just say many of those black people are poor, they're disenfranchised, they're unemployed, they live in the same communities, they have violence over there, and you're working there every day. And every day you come into work, the broadcast says, we're looking for a black male with a handgun just robbed the 7-Eleven. We're looking for another black male with a knife to just uh, try to stab his girlfriend. We're looking for another black male that stole a car. It's not white officers or white people that's calling this in arbitrarily. It's the black community that's reporting this because they are the victims of crime. But unfortunately, that's where the crime base is taking place. And so if that's what you're hearing on an ongoing basis, it almost like hypnotizes you where you're always looking like, wow, I'm looking for a black male. You've got to be able to, as a police officer, you've got to have that seventh sense to be able to block that implicit bias, turn off your stereotype and say, I'm just looking for these specific black males as it relates to this crime. I'm not looking for all black males. And sometimes that could be a challenge, not even just for white officers. That's a challenge for black officers. Uh, Branford from Milford is calling where we live. Branford, you're on where we live. Uh, yes, it's actually Brandon. Oh, sorry, uh, Brandon. The call was, screener had Branford. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> That's okay. I need to enunciate. Um, so I, I was just calling. I'm a, um, I'm a pretty young black male from New Haven, and I've had encounters with police by, uh, like, rolling through stop signs, and about four police cars are involved as far as just me rolling through a stop sign. They had to come out and pretty much interrogate me and things like that as far as, like, how they interact with uh, the black community over policing is definitely an issue. Like, uh, if it was a person of another race, I only have in my mind thinking like another person rolled through a stop sign. It's not going to be four cop cars that pull up behind you. And, of course, I'm nervous and I'm freaked out, and I'm trying to keep my calm, trying to keep their calm. And getting faced like that when I speak to my white coworkers, they don't understand that. They're like, uh, what did you do besides rolling through a stop sign? I didn't do anything. But they felt the need to have multiple people come to me and attack me. And they're not attacking me literally, but it felt like an attack over policing mm-hmm. because there were so many people that's coming at me. So it's just, I feel like they, I feel like over policing on the black community is definitely something that should be spoken about. And the police themselves need to admit that they are doing this and they are generalizing black white uh hispanic police officer all of them and it's because of that narrative that uh if you're a black male that you are dangerous that you are dangerous they might not think that in their mind they not might not be a racist police officer but in the back of their mind they're thinking okay i have to have a little bit of my guard up because they're a black male and i just feel like that's sad Well, thank you again for your call, Brandon, from Milford. Um, I wanted to go back to Janae because we were talking about action steps. So um, over-policing of of blacks in this country, we've heard that before, that message. Um, More and more people are talking about it. We're hearing from uh, police departments around the country about how um, they're working to change uh, training, uh, possibly hiring more minority officers that could help. Um, But again, we heard Brandon say that, you know, police from all different uh, walks of life often uh, – look at uh, black uh, individuals in this country um, suspiciously. So if, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, from your conversations that you've had in the community, from um, the writings that you've had, the reactions of, you know, what is changing? Is anything changing? Well, the one thing that is changing is that 
these uh, incidences of uh, police brutality and over-policing are becoming more well-known in all kinds of communities. Of course, communities of color and poor communities have been saying for a very, very long time that this has been going on, but it is really only with the advent of social media and Twitter and people having cameras um, on their on their telephones that um, we're really able to see almost in real time this unfolding in communities, which you know gives a lot of credibility to the claims of people of color and poor communities, which actually begs another question, which is, you know, we've been saying these things have been going on for years to white people. So either they weren't listening or they didn't believe us, which is a separate issue. Um, But yeah, that's definitely changing. I think what's also changing is that more people are becoming activated around this issue and are really starting to think, gosh, this goes way deeper than just interpersonal racism or interpersonal classism. Um, You know, I think that for a while, many folks were sort of lulled into this feeling that, oh, the civil rights era happened and we've got laws on the books. Uh, People of color have all of these rights now. You know, whether or not somebody has a right is different than whether or not that right is protected and enforced. Um, So I think that people are starting to realize that they need to do a lot of personal work and build consciousness and awareness around this and also that they need to join collectively with other people to take action. And to recognize the systemic racism that mm-hmm. continues to be pervasive mm-hmm. in across across um, institutions. Reverend Whitaker, a senior minister of the First Church of Christ in Hartford, we got a tweet from a listener who says, if we want to move forward, we need to realize the system is unfair from beginning to end, from the first police interaction to the court system. I, I would agree. And, and if we don't recognize the systemic racism, we're, we cannot effectively move forward. I want to take a call now. Uh, Philip from Kent, you're on where we live. Uh, uh, this, is, this is Phil. Uh, this last caller said pretty much uh, what, I, what I called him to say, which, which is that, um, that the slice of racism, the racism is sort of the original sin of, of our country uh, from slavery on. And, and the, the death of racism, uh, while it's everywhere, and we all have unconscious biases, there's also a deep, a small section, but there is a deep, vicious, violent, hate-filled racism of a certain percentage of the population. And there is, a, there is in our police force, uh, that, that, that subsection of the American culture is also represented. And <clears throat> for for decades, for decades, black families have have to tell have had have had to tell their children when you go out, avoid the cops at all costs because it could be anywhere from really unpleasant to you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And and you know that means if you get really direct about it, that lynching never stopped. It, it was outsourced to police departments. That's an ugly thing to say, but. It's and black families have been saying this forever and until social media, as your last speaker said, until social media, until cell phone cameras, laid it there so you can watch a cop strangle a guy on the street and then be found innocent. Until that happened, or you watch guys get, get, get shot multiple times lying down when they absolutely, they're absolutely defensive, that, that, that's a lynching. 
And this has been going on forever. And it's only now coming to life. It can't be denied. You can't look at those videos and deny it. And you have to ask yourself how that can be. You know, this kind of racism is, is a cancer. Mm-hmm. Philip. Uh, I'm done. Yeah, thank you, Ken. We're, we're almost going to be out of time, so I do appreciate uh, your comment. Um, I wanted to also take a call again. We wanted to really ask our listeners to call in, be part of this conversation, so I want to get to some more. Aaron from Hartford, you're on Where We Live. Hi, how's it going today? Good. So um, we're almost out of time, so tell us what your thoughts on the show. Um, oh, I love the show. I just wanted to say this is the first real talk that I've seen, and I listen to NPR all the time, and you guys are awesome. Um, but having a police officer that is is also a black man and part of the community and with the faith leadership involved, um, we need more of this and, and, and less talk. And, and me as being a white man in, in Hartford, um, I'm a tradesman, so I've seen and come from um, a side of, of the white community of your hardworking man that's always like, ooh, ooh, gotta like, just me, 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 and I'm not about that, and I'm, I'm all about just getting people together and loving one another, and and I feel helpless, and I want to mm-hmm. help, and so my question today is, when can we take this type of organization between faith and policing and community activism, and when can, can we all join hands in Hartford, mm-hmm. and when are these not protest, but when can we just get together and all hold hands between black, whites, and all cultures and start the change on the local level that, that really needs to happen to start all this racism and bigotry to go away? So my question is, like, what can I do, or when are people like, like, like you guys that are higher-ups, that are, have a higher voice, when are we going to when are we going to get together and make the action happen? We need to do this. All right. Thank you so much, Aaron, for your call. I want to get to first uh, Janae Woods. I want to have you react because you talked about action steps. We got another tweet. Someone wanted to hear more about what people can do. Yeah. Thank you for your call, Aaron. Um, and in regard to what can you do, especially what what can you do as a white man right now? Well, the number one thing that you can do right now is go out and find some other white people to organize with. So I really um, encourage you to check out this really great organization called Showing Up for Racial Justice, uh, Surge.org. It's a group of white people working together across the country to work on these very issues. And there is a chapter here in Hartford. So, um, And they also have a chapter for families as well. Because one of the things that we can all do as individuals, um, because racism is a learned behavior, is to make sure our children don't learn it. So they're showing up for racial justice families. There's also a new organization called Embrace Race, um, and I believe that's out of Massachusetts. And they have a website presence as well, at least on Facebook. So I would definitely check out their resources. And um, I would also say that one thing you can do is diversify your media so that you're getting stories from different voices, that's an immediate thing you can do. And in terms of leadership and higher-ups, you know, coming together to have a voice on this, oftentimes folks in those positions won't act until the people force them to make a decision and act. So we really need to put the heat on our leaders to be proactive and thoughtful and take steps and let us know how we can join together as a community so that it isn't just top-down action, but it's really grassroots level up 
And I think that some local police office, police chiefs are becoming more open to that idea. In fact, um, the police chief for West Hartford, I believe, just published a letter yesterday mm-hmm. talking about this issue and how the department would be addressing it. I wanted to, uh, we have a lot of other calls on, but I wanted, there's a question that I wanted to pose to Shafiq Abdusabur, again, a new, op- a new Haven police officer joining us from uh, the studios at Yale University. Uh, Shafiq, there's a question from a retired cop. He wants to know what's one action step that you think will help for those police officers coming out of the academy? I think the best thing that they can do is get involved with the community organization within there's the city that they work in. I used a technique when I went away to college in Georgia. I went to Carrollton, Georgia. It was separated and segregated 1985 by a railroad. All white people lived on one side, all black people lived on the other side. What I did was I went there as a student and I got involved in the community go to one of the churches, get involved in one of the youth programs. Don't allow uh, the bolos, be on the lookout for, that's what we call them, the bolos. <laughs> Don't allow the bolos of the, of the, from the daily briefing become the way that you learn how to define that community because police officers, it don't matter who we are, we are there, the two to every 1,000 police officers nationwide because we often are responding to your worst condition your worst condition. So the more of those worst conditions we got on one side, what are we responding to to dispel that worst condition that's already been confirmed? So if you get involved, you, you, you go, you live in, say, Hartford, there's got to be a boys and girls club. There's got to be a youth program. There's got to be an AAU basketball team. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a Latino youth program. There's got to be a LTBGQ program. There's got to be something, and you need to be a part of that with yourself right? Not driven by the chief, not driven by your commander, not driven with your desire to look good on a resume. It's got to be driven because number one, you care about yourself. You care about this, preserving this profession. You believe in the spirit of our country, a little shy of 300 years old. We believe in the democracy. In order to make that happen, you've got to believe in the people that you're policing. And you've got to believe that no matter what, no matter what the day is, they're good people. They're good people, and they deserve the, the, the right and the respect for you giving them that courtesy to be good people in their good days and even on their bad days. And Janae Woods, you wanted to respond. Yeah. Um, for folks who are uh, really looking at what they can do on the individual level and also to take into consideration a lot of the things that Shafiq said about the some of the conditions that police officers are working under is um, everybody can go to joincampaignzero.org, which lays out a 10-point plan for changing policing at the local, regional, and national level, and it involves a number of perspectives. So it talks not only about ending broken windows policing in favor of, you know, more inclusive community policing, but also includes things like fair contracts for police unions for officers. So it really is a more holistic approach to some of what we're talking about. I encourage people to check it out. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank Janae Woods, local community organizer and activist. You can read her blog, What Matters, at JanaeWoods.com. Also, Reverend Dr. Damaris Whitaker, Senior Minister of the First Church of Christ in Hartford, Connecticut. Also, Shafiq Abdusabur, New Haven police officer, author of A Black Man's Guide to Law Enforcement in America. So good of you to join us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. When we return, we've been talking about the conversation among adults. How do you talk about this tough stuff with your kids? This is where we live.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This past hour, we've been reflecting on the recent violence in our country, uh, the killings of black men and police officers over the last three weeks. These incidents have once again touched off conversations about race and guns in our country. But we've been wondering, how do you keep your children from seeing this footage on on television or on your phone. Uh, Maybe you want to have the conversation with your child about what's going on in our country and how we can move forward. Uh, We've asked a a parent from Hartford to join us today in studio, Jamil Ragland. Uh, He co-hosts the Radius Project from WNPR, and we understand you have a young son. So first of all, thanks for coming on, and tell us about, you know, how you've been speaking with him about this. Thank you very much for having me, Lucy. Um... So we had the conversation I've had with my son has been one that's been rooted both in some violence that we've experienced personally and how that violence connects to the broader things that are happening in society. We had an incident over the last weekend where our apartment was entered and things were stolen. At the same time that that happened, there were some gunshots that occurred in our neighborhood at that um, at around the same time. So my son was there with his best friend, and they were having a sleepover, and they came and woke me up and asked me, you know, what's going on, what's what's happening. So we start talking about personal safety and how you feel safe when you have to deal with the types of violence that and the types of fear that you have that you experience in your neighborhood, right? And from there, we were talking about, you know, those gunshots that are happening in the neighborhood, those aren't aimed at you. Those people aren't coming for you. You know, we can take precautions to protect ourselves from the types of things that happen in our neighborhood. And at that point, my son's friends started talking about the terrorist attack in Nice Mm -hmm. and how, you know, he was afraid that that sort of thing was going to happen to him and that he was in. And, you know, so then became at that point. How are you feeling about this, Gabriel? My, that's my son's name, Gabriel. How are you feeling about all this, too? And we start talking about, you know, terrorist attacks that you see in the news, the shootings that you see in the news. I hadn't brought any of this up to my son, right? Because it's kind of a it's, it's a tough thing to bring up, right? Do you go to your child and say, hey, have you heard about all these terrible things that are happening in the news right now? And, you know, and you hope that they haven't, but clearly they have. Mm-hmm. So... You have to realize that those there you can't shield your children from that. The news is always on whether you're going or they're at home or whether you're in a Dunkin' Donuts with CNN on. The news is always on, and children are much more aware of the world than we give them credit for. They always know more than we think they do. So the conversation has come from them. They brought it to me and made me realize I have a responsibility here to try to explain what's happening, but not to explain it in a way that you know. As the uh, one of the guests said earlier, kind of adds to this existential dread that all we adults feel right now, as opposed to, you know, I have to say to my son, these things are happening right now. This violence is happening, but that is, you know, separate from you in the specific case that it happens. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, my son is a black boy in America that has to deal with those issues, right? Tamir Rice was only 12 years old when he was killed. Ayanna Jones is only seven years old when she was killed. My son is nine now. So now I have to thread the needle of saying to my son, okay, how do I protect your innocence, right? Because I feel like sometimes that's something that gets lost in these conversations, right, that black children, black boys and girls have a sense of innocence and wonder about the world too, Mm -hmm. that black children have, you know, that needs to be protected as well, that needs to be valued and cherished as well. At the same time, to prepare them for a world that doesn't value their lives the same way that they value white children, right? 
how do you thread that needle of protecting innocent while preparing them for a world that doesn't necessarily protect that innocence either? Mm-hmm. It's hard. I mean, social media sure doesn't make it easy. You know, obviously, I've, I'm in the news business. I have to be tuned into the news at all times of the of the day. But I have a five-year-old son who, you know, when he hears something, it sticks with him. And then they ask questions. So how do you find a way to move again the conversation forward for our children so they're not fearful? For me, it's been um, – there was actually an excellent tweet um, that I saw from Bougie Black Girl. Someone asked her the same thing. Mm-hmm. How do you talk about these things with your children? And she said, I don't. I is not my children's job to solve these problems that adults have created. And I think of it that way as well. I don't think of it as I don't go to my son and say, "Okay, Gabriel, these are the issues in the world. And you now have to deal with these issues, you know, as you grow older. I say to him, how do you feel? What can we talk about? What do you need to hear in order to feel safer, in order to feel better about what's happening, in order to feel secure in yourself right now? And as he grows older and these conversations become more sophisticated, then it can be a conversation. Here's what you can do about this. Here's the things that you can do. Here's what Black Lives Matter means. Here's what, you know, these movements mean. And here's how we can be participating in these movements. But right now, he's nine. It's not his job to be aware of all the terrible things in the world. It's my job to do that for him, to act on his behalf and to let him be a kid. That's right. So parents, we go by our instinct, right? So there's certain things that we feel comfortable talking about. There are others we may not feel comfortable talking about. At the, the timing of all these, this violence in our country is in the summertime when kids are out of school. Um, does it make it difficult or is it easier when you can feel like a parent, you can control the message versus what a teacher might be telling them in school or their friends? I think it's harder during the summer because there's definitely less to keep them occupied and less, you know, focused during the summertime and you do have instances during this you know the weekend where you know me and my son and his friend are just kind of like hanging out around the apartment right <laughs> and you know i know he does that um during the week you know it's it's hard to keep a, it's, it's very hard to keep a child occupied for 24 hours a day <laughs> you know it's very hard so <laughs> That's for sure so sometimes you just you know just hang out and the news comes on and you kind of have to then deal with those things as they come and i think it from my perspective, it might be a little bit better for me to be a little bit more proactive on this to start saying, you know, hey, have you heard anything? Is there anything you want to talk about? Finding a way to bring the topic up without saying something bad happened. Let's talk about it. Instead, say to him, are you, how are you feeling? You know, what's going on inside of you? And we can talk about that that way. Thank you so much, Jamil Raglan. Again, a writer, a Hartford resident, a parent. You're also co-host of the Radius Project from WNPR. Well, we know you're having these kinds of conversations in your homes around dinner. You know, how do you talk about how do you talk about this kind of stuff with your kids? We're going to um, reflect back on this again in the coming months. We've got an important election coming up around the corner. Uh, these issues will stay with us. So we thank you, Jamil, for coming on, and we thank you for listening and joining the conversation. This is where we live.